Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. My next guest has a long career as an engineer and cybersecurity practitioner for the Navy and Marine Corps. He reached the senior executive service nearly 10 years ago. Now he's on the civilian side of government as the chief information security officer for the Homeland Security Department. And he's among the latest cadre of presidential rank award winners. Ken Bible joins me now. Mr. Bible, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Good to be with you. Thanks for uh, having me. And I still think of you as the Marine Corps Chief Information Security Officer because you were there so long. But that's not a bad thing, Tom. <laughs> but now you're at DHS. And, well, I guess my first question is, what did they tell you you got this award for? Well, you know, I hope it recognized the continuous or continued service that I've had as an executive. You mentioned the Marine Corps contributions or the time that I spent in the Pentagon and, and really working through the network modernization plan for the Marine Corps, some of the investments that I championed in resilient communications as we were coming out of the land wars and moving into more maritime expeditionary and the tactical cloudlet really being a champion for the tactical edge employment of cloud technology. But in DHS, I came over in January 2021, which right as the scope of the solar wind incident was really being realized. And I think the focus within DHS was the leadership that I had in the recovery effort and really enduring types of things that we've been able to put in place as a result of thinking about that recovery. So things like our need to be able to prioritize cybersecurity investments. So we developed a unified cybersecurity maturity model, which allowed us to look at ourselves at a program component and as a department level in terms of our cybersecurity maturity and prioritize investments investments that we're making. Importantly, too, thinking about supply chain risk management, which is really at the heart of what happened in SolarWinds and really catalyzing some discussion about how would we assess our vendors who build systems for us or that provide services for us. So that's translated into a cyber hygiene assessment that was part of the secretary's priority on using our contracting authority to build up American cybersecurity posture and in industry. I think that's been very profound and impactful. So I'm very proud of that work. And then third, just how we look at ourselves in different ways. So launching the Hack DHS initiatives that we put in place to be able to do bug bounties, to bring external researchers in to look at our systems. And as CIO Heisen says, the cheapest insurance you can buy, because now you're leveraging the power of the external researcher to see what might have been missed when a program was being developed. All right. And so that implies then that for all of the stories over the years of cybersecurity breaches, all of the policies released, the laws issued, there is progress in cybersecurity for the federal government. I think so. Yes. I mean, the challenge we have as probably others have talked about is that we keep on shouting that we need more money for cybersecurity, but we have very few objective ways of measuring whether we actually got what we paid for. And that was really, to me, I can't guarantee that a breach isn't going to happen, but what I can do is focus the investments that's being made so that I optimize my chances that I'm going to avoid that breach, or if I do have a breach, I can contain it rapidly and avoid the loss of data. And you bring an engineering background, a pretty solid engineering background to this, even though the most recent jobs you've had involve a lot of policy, a lot of compliance, a lot of budget planning and so forth. But even in those activities, do you think that the engineering background is helpful? 
I absolutely do. I always go back and say that at the heart of my thinking is having an engineering background. My very first job as a nuclear engineer at the former Charleston Naval Shipyard in Charleston, South Carolina, really embedded in me this desire to kind of understand and quantify what I was doing quantify what I'm trying to go achieve as an outcome. And so that discipline of engineering has carried through with me for the entirety of my 39 years as a federal employee and certainly the last 10 or 11 as a senior executive. We're speaking with Kenneth Bible. He's chief information security officer of the Homeland Security Department and one of this year's presidential rank award winners. And the other thing I think maybe that ties in from specifically the nuclear engineering idea is that, you know, in that domain, you have to really control your variables. And if one variable changes in one place, you better document it and know what it's going to mean down the line because of the potentially disastrous consequences. Does that also kind of seems like it should play in cybersecurity also? I think it does. We certainly look at it, or I've tried to go look at it through the lens as part of this unified cybersecurity model, that there are many different aspects, different facets that you're trying to employ as part of a cybersecurity program. And you've got to balance those. And if you take away from one area, you're exactly right. You're going to impact a secondary area. And how do you balance that? This is about risk management. It's not about risk avoidance because there's always going to be risk. So how do you start to go get some sort of a objective? feel for where you're carrying those risks, and then how do you want to mitigate them where it's appropriate? Yeah, risk management should lead to disaster avoidance, I guess, is what we use a better way to put it. Exactly right, exactly right. And on the issue of public service and the civil service that you've been a member of for so long, comments on what does it take to kind of have a consistent career and consistent motion in what can be, you know, pretty heavy waters sometimes? To me, it's always been about staying curious. I talk about this sometimes with students, or very frequently with students, that the job that you end up in hasn't been invented yet. And that certainly was true for me. I mean, Steve Katz just passed away. He was the first CISO, or credited as being the first CISO in history. The role, that was 1990-something, right? I started my career in 1985. The role that I'm in didn't exist. In fact, much of cybersecurity was still very nascent. It wasn't really a big construct in people's minds when they were using technology back in the 80s and 90s. So this is about staying curious, being able to learn new things as you go along in your career, not being afraid of learning those new things, because the government provides opportunities at a very early level in your career to take on a tremendous amount of responsibility. And I've seen it in my career, and we're seeing it certainly with the new cyber talent management system that DHS has put in place. These entry-level candidates that we're bringing on board bring tremendous amounts of experience from other work that they've done, and they can come in on the ground running and be able to contribute to the cybersecurity mission of the department. And they're curious. That's the key. Stay curious. Stay willing to learn. And as CISO of DHS with its many components, that seems to be a perennial challenge for people that have agency-wide or department-wide jobs at a place like DHS when all the components have a great deal of autonomy and budgets and their own CISOs. What's the best advice for managing that for people that might be headed to that SES level? Well, it goes back into the executive core qualifications. One of the key executive core qualifications in my mind is building coalitions. And how do you bring people together 
in terms of how to govern, right? I'm extremely proud of the CISO council that I've been able to foster in VHS because it's the CISOs from all of the components. And it's not me making a decision unilaterally for the department. I'm the CISO for the department. I cover the entirety of the department, not just headquarters or management. But I have the council of these CISOs from all across the department. And these are smart folks, and they provide extremely good advice and collaboration as we think about how to do things department-wide. I would say going back to the reason perhaps that I was nominated for the PRA is also that piece of how do you make decisions? How do you govern? And it was very important to me coming over from the Pentagon to bring those constructs of how do you build a team? How do you build that decision-making capability for the department? And I think we've got one of the most effective councils out there that I've seen anywhere in government. I'm extremely proud of that and having been able to bring that together and lead that group through some pretty major decisions over the last three years. And if you look at your career, SPAWAR and Navy and Marine Corps and Homeland Security Department, there is one thread, and that is big and bureaucratic. And not because they're evil, but just because bureaucracy goes with size more than with domain. At some point, would you ever like to work for maybe a small hardware store? (laughs) Well, you know, certainly being involved in smaller scale work has some appeal. I mean, I think that maybe regional, the challenge with having been and performing working at a federal department level, the third largest federal department, is that you really have a desire to see that impact. You really desire to see what your impact is on the missions of something as large as DHS. DHS, across its different components, interacts with the public more than any other federal agency in the government. It's kind of hard to kind of say, well, I don't want to do that anymore or to impact that kind of a mission. It's been very uh, rewarding and humbling to be part of an organization that has that kind of mission. So you won't be like LBJ leaving the White House and running his ranch in four ranch hands as if it was the White House, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I have two toy poodles that might want to weigh in on that. They might just want to have my attention full time. But I think I want to be able to continue to contribute and, and, and have an impact, whether that's helping in governance in some fashion in uh, corporate or being able to advise and, and continue to contribute. I think that goes back to once you've built this mindset of curiosity and wanting to learn, that doesn't stop. So I think uh, to me, I got to eat my own dog food there. If I say that's an important characteristic, uh, let me live that mission. Let me sure. live that out. And the poodles will eat their own dog food. Can <laughs> And and my food as well. (laughs) Right. Ken Bible is Chief Information Security Officer of the Homeland Security Department and one of this year's Presidential Rank Award winners. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is 
And, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.